This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been 12 years since a tsunami hit Japan and damaged a nuclear plant in Fukushima. Now the company TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, is preparing to release radiated water into the ocean. That could be in a matter of weeks if the Japanese government agrees to allow it. The discharge is expected to take at least three decades. But the effect on the environment and any possible um, impact on the food chain is a concern, not just for some Japanese citizens. Korea and China have objected to the release. Uh, other Pacific Island nations have reservations. Bob Richmond is a scientist with the University of Hawaii's Kiwalo Marine Laboratory. He was asked to sit on a scientific panel to weigh the risk to the marine environment. We had a candid conversation about his visit to Fukushima earlier this year and talked to him last week about the safety of the proposed plan. When I was asked to serve on this expert panel with four other colleagues about a year and a half ago, we went in with open minds. I'm not anti-nuclear power. I'm uh, a scientist, so data-driven. And so we began reviewing the various reports and the data. And it was very obvious from the very beginning that there are major gaps in the key information that's necessary to make a determination of safety. And as the saying goes, that an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, that the fact that they say, well, there's no proof it's bad because they have no proof of anything, that many of the key data points that you would need to do a responsible review of the situation are simply missing. Everything from what's actually in the tanks, some of the sampling on the actual radionuclides, there are over 64 of concern. They've only looked at a subset of that. Some of the radionuclides could be ignored because of their very short half-lives, but ones that are very important. There are inadequate and, in some cases, inaccurate information, things like cesium-137, strontium-90. These are of major concern because of their ability to be taken up by organisms, what we call trophically transferred, moved from one part of the food web to the other, and then bioaccumulated. And this is a pathway to get into people. And then the other part is just the larger scale. You know, as a marine biologist, I deal with these data every day. They're kind of pretending that this is in and of itself the only uh, issue of concern. And we know that the oceans are already in serious trouble from a combination of climate change impacts, ocean acidification, plastics, pollution, overfishing, you go down the line. So the health of our oceans are severely compromised already. And that means so is the health of the people who depend on the ocean for their survival, culture, ecology, and in their economies as well. And so adding additional stressors to the ocean right now is exactly what we're trying not to do. And the irony here is the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, is part of the United Nations. So here, if you look at what other parts of the United Nations have said, there are three rapporteurs who have portfolios to deal with human rights. They've all come out strongly condemning the present plan. And then just last month, 193 nations signed on to a new ocean treaty where the cornerstones include improving the quality of the ocean in terms of reducing pollution and respecting the international nature of a shared ocean. And so the present plan violates the very core of this new international treaty that was just signed, which is really a work of art. And then finally, because I'm working with the Pacific Island Forum, which is 18 Pacific nations, they have a very wonderful 2050 blueprint for what they're calling the blue continent that deals with the integrity of the ocean, the health of the ocean, and the health of all who depend on it. And this applies in the face of that as well. So at all levels, from the biology to the chemistry to the concerns that we have, this is truly transboundary, meaning that the release will not stay in Japanese waters. It'll spread both through currents and through organisms. So apparently, read a paper recently where radionuclides can attach to plastics that are floating in the ocean and another way of dispersal. And this clearly is not what we should be doing right now. We should be going in the other direction. And finally, to say this never should have happened. And in doing my due diligence and understanding what brought us to this point, it's just a series of very poor decisions on behalf of TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, led to this disaster that never should have occurred. And all you have to do is Google was Fukushima preventable? And you'll see some very compelling scientific papers. And even the Carnegie Institute uh, did a quote-unquote postmortem. And they said that this, there's no reason this should have occurred. We can't go backwards. But we see many of the same problems and mistakes being made in this planning that led to the last disaster. And this is not something that gives us confidence in the Japanese government and TEPCO 
and in any agency that is kind of going along for the ride. So this notion of dilution, dilution, dilution as the solution. That's exactly the issue at hand that, you know, the chemistry and the physics. So we've been in some animated discussions saying that if you calculate the concentration of some of the radionuclides and then you consider the volume of the Pacific Ocean, that there's a great dilution that goes on and the math is sound. But the underlying principles are not, meaning that if the ocean was a sterile vessel, then the dilution concentrations would be accurate. The problem is the biology, and that's part of the ocean. The food webs that are there, everything from the phytoplankton, the microscopic floating plants in the ocean that photosynthesize and become the very base of the food web, and then from the organisms in the sediment, and then the larvae and everything that goes up to the top uh, predators, things like tuna. And so we know at every step of the way, while one group is talking about dilution, the reality is that there is uptake by biological elements of the ecosystem. There is this trophic transfer up the food web, and there is accumulation within these organisms. And we already know, for example, in 2011, tuna were caught off of the San Diego coast in California that had cesium that was targeted back to the Fukushima disaster. The levels were very low, so it's important that people understand that. But if we're talking about a release that's supposed to occur over 30 years, we're looking at the opportunities for large buildup. And major elements of this concern have not been adequately addressed. Quite the opposite. We were reviewing their experiments for how do they measure using some organisms to try to get a handle on it. They picked the wrong organisms, no filter feeders. And even the organisms they picked, the experiments are so terribly flawed They're not feeding them on exposed marine organisms like snails and worms, crabs and things like that that live in the sediment that would pick it up. They're feeding these fish in fiberglass tanks using commercial fish pellets. There's no way that this is getting anywhere close to mirroring what's going to go on in the environment. So your issue... I don't think that that's by accident. That's by design. So your issue is with the methodology and the conclusion? The methodology, the data, the gaps that are there... And then, of course, just the issue at hand. They do not have the protocols. We read what they produced is called a radiological environmental impact assessment. Pretty self-explanatory. What are the chances and what happens? They're missing the most important part. They are limited, the protocols and the experimental design for detecting what's in the water, what's in the organisms, what's in the sediment are inadequate to be able to address the issues. There are major deficiencies in their environmental impact assessment, and they're also not able to address. So what happens if something goes wrong? And a very key part, I do this from my job all the time, ecological risk assessment. You have to look at the scenario when a problem occurs. And if we look at the history of TEPCO and what went on to get us to this point, there can be no security whatsoever in the fact that TEPCO will get this right. And that's part of the calculations. I asked one of the radiochemists, and he said, yeah, I'm assuming that everything goes to plan. I said, if you read what I did, I think you'd be very concerned to say possible things will go to plan, especially over a 30-year discharge horizon. So what do you do when, if and when, there is a release of radionuclides? And the answer is nothing. There's no way of getting the genie back in the bottle. So I'll simply wrap it up by saying that There are alternatives, and so it's one thing to say, no, don't do it. There's another approach we've taken is to say, is there a better way of handling this issue? And the answer is absolutely yes. We did a calculation and wrote a paper on the option of using the accumulated water for making concrete to be used on site. I was in Fukushima in February as part of the Pacific Island Forum mission, and they need to use a lot of concrete. They're trying to build up the seawall, which should have been at a higher level to prevent the tsunami damage. They need to replace the underground ice barrier that's trying to keep the groundwater out of the three reactors that are in meltdown. And they need to stabilize radioactive soil that's distributed around the area. That's going to take a lot of concrete. And if they use the water to make concrete for these and related functions, not only do you remove the problems of biological uptake by keeping it out of the ocean, You also remove that transboundary concern of spreading it throughout the Pacific. And you also address the intergenerational concern, the half-life of tritium, which is one of the radionuclides that can't be removed using their advanced liquid processing system. If it's bound up in concrete after 50 years, 
It'll be less than 6% of its original ionizing radiation because it will have gone through four half-lives. You know, I'm just thinking of the history of nuclear waste in the Pacific, and I know some of the irradiated material was put in the ground and capped, uh, you know, from Bikini Atoll. Can we just evaporate the water? You know, the idea of being able to concentrate rather than dilute is definitely the direction we've been heading. And that's probably, that's one of the ideas behind the advanced liquid processing system, what's called the ALP. The problem with some of that is then uh, when you have uh, tritium can vaporize, it actually does all the time and it's in the environment. But the idea here is that there are techniques to bind it and to basically concentrate it down and then not put it in the ocean and do exactly what you're saying. There are things like subterranean geothermal ways of being able to bind it up and to take it away from interactions with people as well. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the concrete option just because the opportunity is there five years versus 30. So we're trying to look realistically at what's possible. But yeah, there are other alternatives in addition to the concrete. And when we brought this up repeatedly with people at TEPCO, they shrug and say, no, well, we thought about it and we won't do that. Mm -hmm. And when we ask them why, it's everything, well, we have other plans. And we said, well, we know what it is, which is not right. Mm-hmm. One of them said, well, there's uh, salt in the water in some of the tanks, and that would undermine the integrity of the concrete. And if there's salt in the water after it goes to their processing system, then since it's based a lot on reverse osmosis, RO, that's saying if salt's getting through, then radionuclides are definitely getting through. And so a lot of it has been, it's really down to politics and money. TEPCO is trying to find a way to get it out of their backyard. And if this advanced liquid processing system is as effective and efficient as they're claiming it to be, it's very difficult to take them seriously when they say, but still, we don't want to keep any of the water products or anything like the concrete in our home even though they're the ones that are responsible for it. It's important to clarify the United Nations is not supporting this. It's only the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA. Dr. Grossi, who is the director there, made it very clear that they neither recommended nor endorsed the plan. So if you look at the wording very carefully, it comes down to what we call plausible deniability. The IAEA does not have the authority to tell Japan what to do or not to do. They don't have the ability or the authority to approve that resides with Japan's nuclear regulation authority. They're the only ones that can do that. The IAEA has said that Japan is a sovereign nation. They can do whatever they want. When we tried to pin the IAEA down, the director Mm -hmm. and the people in charge of safety to say, what about the alternatives? They said, that's not our responsibility to look at alternatives or justification. Our only job is to look at if the plan meets the standards that have been established. Meeting established standards is no guarantee of safety at all. So, I mean, as far as any, if there's any hope of blocking this plan and this release, what would it be in the next couple of weeks? Political, political and financial, that the Pacific Islands Forum is going through severe deliberations and we continue to do the best we can to provide them with accurate and adequate information in the form that they can use to make informed decisions. There's quite a lot of pushback from China, from Korea. Other nations are beginning to push back at it. Some of them it's hard because they release uh, tritium from uh, existing nuclear power plants into the ocean. But I'm a firm believer that other people's bad behavior does not excuse additional bad behavior. So so you're hoping hoping that then these, the pressure from these other companies and the pushback will turn things around? Yeah, it's it's a political decision. Okay. If Japan felt at any point that it was going to cost them more reputationally, it was one of the most dystopian experiences I ever had. Just figure, you know, Hunger Games meets Apocalypse Now. When we were viewing the Alps system at Fukushima, I was looking around just shaking my head, and I definitely I had trouble sleeping after just seeing what was going on, knowing how easily it could have been avoided. And some of the same people that were standing by when the disaster occurred and the problems that led to it are still in positions of authority at TEPCO, and that's very scary. That was a candid conversation we had with Bob Richman, head of the University of Hawaii's Kewalo Marine Laboratory, weighing in on the plan by TEPCO to release radiated water in the ocean. TEPCO's plan was to start releasing it next month.
This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In 1883, before the Alawai Canal was built, Kapi'olani Park was a watery region of swamps and ponds dotted with islands and islets. The largest of these man-made islands was a popular destination for locals. It was a rectangle measuring roughly 100 by 700 feet and located in the northwest corner of the park, where Kapahulu Road turned into Kapahulu Avenue. This large island was forested with ironwood trees, dates, and coconut palms and keawe. It was also the site of the first uh, Kapilani ba- uh, Park Bandstand, where the Royal Hawaiian Band performed on Sunday afternoons. To get there, you either rode or walked one of the several uh, narrow wooden plank bridges. Picnickers, strollers, and people with romance on their minds frequented the secluded spot. For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of this popular but long-gone island? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets the HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Many Americans with ADHD are scrambling for their prescription medication due to a months long shortage. Adderall people, ADHD people, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because I just drove all over my town. Not a single person had my medication. What's behind the demand for ADHD drugs and how are people coping who can't get their medications? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at two. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dowling Family Charitable Fund. Dowling Company, for more than three decades working to develop housing projects for the Maui community and committed to building in balance. An HPR supporter since 2001. Guzman is the regional administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency, which covers the Pacific, also known as Region 9. She was in Honolulu last week for a news conference to announce funding for renewable energy initiatives. She also visited central Oahu and met with residents at Kunia Village, whose drinking water wells tested positive, positive for PFAS, the forever chemicals which don't break down easily in the environment. The presence of these chemicals is a growing concern in the drinking uh, water system nationwide. A U.S. Geological Survey report says about half of drinking water systems in the country have found various levels of the chemicals. Here's Guzman talking about PFAS found in the central Oahu wells. Well, I was very fortunate to have been toured around by Stevie Whalen with the Hawaii Agricultural Research Center. And we went out to Gunia Village, but also went in around to some of the places that some of the folks who live there work. So we went out to some of the farm fields, saw some of the aquaculture that's happening there, and really got to know a little bit of the history of the village. And, you know, from the Del Monte days, and we met a woman who worked there and still resided there and talked about what was happening. She focused more on on the positive and the rehabilitation of the units. And we talked about the water 
Fortunately, right now, they do not have a PFAS issue because they're now sourcing their water from a different source. And they're collaborating with the Army on that, although it is more expensive than what they had on their own. So they are looking for an additional solution that's longer term and hopefully more affordable for the residents. So can you talk about this greater concern and awareness that we have now about these forever chemicals? Yeah, it's very important because it's a very common commonly found now. Throughout our region, we have tend to have some hotter spots where typically they're near Air Force communities. Obviously, on the bases themselves, there's been some high rates and in the neighboring communities. Throughout the whole United States and, and certainly in our region that covers Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories and California. And everywhere. Guam was out there a few months ago, and they're also dealing with it. So it's not an issue alone for Hawaii here. But when you look at communities like Kunia Village that are very much doing things on their own, it's a very high cost. And they're very fortunate right now that we talked to their water director as well as Stevie that operates the whole thing there. But they're looking at alternatives. One alternative is another well going into a different part of the aquifer that has hopefully doesn't seem to have any potential to be contaminated by PFAS and that uh, drilling a, a well there and then and developing the infrastructure to bring that water down. And then the other option is treatment. And that's obviously a higher cost option because you have to deal with it in an ongoing basis. And this came up recently just with the whole situation at Red Hill with the fuel spills, and then we had the fire suppression system problems recently. And that's why we just left a meeting at the Governor's Water Committee and reiterating what's been happening through the Joint Task Force and even beyond that through the different efforts with the Navy in particular, Board of Water Supply and other experts they're meeting actually to talk about that continued effort on groundwater monitoring. We want to see where there might be migration. There have already been wells shut down. Ernie Lau was giving me an update yesterday. He said that eight of their system wells have been shut in and being precautious, obviously. So, you know, it's also going to be a matter of not just the treatment, which potentially there's a very viable path with carbon treatment. And then the question is, what do we do with that waste? And it's going to have PFAS in it. So where do we put it so that it doesn't become another source of contamination? And you have come here in part because of the situation at Red Hill. This is your area. Now, just recently, there was a report that was released from the inspector general from the EPA Um, Talk about that because, you know, I understand that um, they were looking at how well the EPA responded to this crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, I really welcome these investigations, internal investigations to look at both response. A lot of time they look at our spending. We'll be looking a lot of our expenditures, for example, on the bipartisan infrastructure law. The way I view these things, it's really an opportunity for us to improve. What did we potentially fail at? What do we looking to improve on. And one of the things that really we took as the opportunity was to point out the resources that we have dedicated as an agency to the response and to the ongoing need. Because as you know, this is not a, you know, we're going to defuel and we're done. We're going to continue to monitor it. Obviously, we got to figure out what the end use of that facility will be. And that's just there. We're talking about the whole base and, and really the whole island. So, I think one of the best things that came out of the report from my perspective was really pointing out the resources that have been dedicated because it did take some work. It took some work internally, and we had a lot of support from our leadership. You know, the administrator has made this a priority. He's met multiple times with the Secretary of Defense on it. They both have made this a priority. I know there are community groups that were saying, you know, we need to have a lab here that can do the Mm -hmm. kind of testing and give us the results quickly instead Mm -hmm. of waiting for weeks on end, sending it to the mainland. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think we have that capacity issue in in the Pacific in general. We do have the opportunity with the bipartisan infrastructure law. I know that some states and territories, not to mention Guam again, but they are using some of their bipartisan infrastructure law to rebuild their lab and enhance it for PFAS testing. I know that we are enhancing our own lab 
in the region, which is actually in Corvallis, Oregon, which is... Yes, I've been there. <laughs> okay. Well, Oregon's not in the region, but we shared that lab, obviously, and and we will be doing more PFAS testing as well. So that is a resource we hope to partner with Department of Health on. But it's like, of course, having more labs is a positive thing. There, there's no question about it. I know that there has been an effort by Senator Hirono, and I certainly applaud all of her efforts in getting the incredible amount of resources that she has, along with all the congressional delegation, but obviously her leadership has been tremendous. We don't have externally funded grant program for labs. The closest we get is through the state revolving funds and some of that bipartisan infrastructure law that gave the states a little bit of flexibility to use it. Here, I know that Hawaii is really prioritizing you know, some of those needs like we just talked about, like Unia Village and really putting those funds there and not to a lab. And, and you know, that makes sense. You want to get people safe drinking water first and foremost. That was Region 9 Administrator Martha Guzman. Um, she's with the Environmental Protection Agency and was touring Honolulu last week. We talked with her before she returned to San Francisco on Friday. And we'll continue our conversation with her after a short break. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Think you've got the chops to be on the air? HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Let's get back to a conversation we had with Martha Guzman, Region 9 Administrator for the EPA. She took part in a news conference with Hawaii U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono last week to highlight additional money coming to the islands for green energy projects. We talked about the Inflation Reduction Act has a bunch of funding, but one of the biggest pots is the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. It's a $27 billion fund to finance everything from clean energy to, you know, transit-oriented housing. I mean, the the breadth is wide for climate reduction and infrastructure investments. And the piece that we were highlighting of that $27 billion was a $7 billion pot of funding for Solar for All. And it's going for disadvantaged communities. And I was incredibly impressed by the governor's team and Gwen, whose last name is fleeting me right now, but she has a plan to apply for that money. And it's incredibly fast timeline. The states have to tell us by the end of this month what they're going to propose. And and then the process goes on from there. But I feel so great for Hawaiians based on that discussion because not every state is where you guys are at. You guys knew the answer was renewables before any other state. And you did it out of resiliency, really. And now the nation is catching up. And this $7 billion is intended to help accelerate that in poor people. And you guys have a plan for it. And so it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to, you know, getting to a place. It's a competitive process, obviously, but you guys are looking really good. So hoping to come back uh, maybe as soon as the end of the year to celebrate that award. And we also highlighted the climate planning reduction grants that both the state of Hawaii and the city and county of Honolulu received. And they talked about how they're using, once again, this is not a starting from scratch because you guys have been at this for some time, but these resources, $4 million in total, are going to be used to really 
engage the public on updating the climate strategies on how to reduce greenhouse gases. Again, from solar to the transit you just put up, the rail, congratulations on that, and all of those necessary strategies to reduce greenhouse gases. And then in order to apply for another pot of Inflation Reduction Act funding just for local and state governments, and that's going to be, and territories as well. So with these plans, they'll be able to compete for even greater amounts of infrastructure funding. There's a lot of work uh, out here. I know that you folks are overseeing, you know, particular with this whole thing with uh, the military in Red Hill. Uh, I know there was another inspector general's report that the DOD has been underway. The IG folks were here just the other week mm -hmm. uh, touring Red Hill. I don't know. I don't know if you've heard anything about how soon we might hear from that report. No, there's a, a strict firewall on that. And that's a good thing because they're independently looking at things. And like I said, I think it, it'll be like it was to us. It'll have critical elements that we need to take as an opportunity. You know, we have, I talked to my 13-year-old about having a growth mindset. That's what we need to do with these IG reports. They're coming at these, they're looking at it with a critical lens. How could we have improved? How can we still improve? And that's what we need in government. We need to be open, transparent to that criticism. And that's why we have this structure so that we're not just defending any sort of status quo, but always an opportunity to improve. And obviously the... The citizens here of Hawaii have been the biggest contributor to us being better collectively. How tricky is it when you're dealing with the military? You know, you mentioned you were in Guam, and I know they've got the military build up there, the bases, and local communities are concerned about the firing ranges and mm -hmm. about the open pit burning because that's mm -hmm. not allowed on the mainland, on the U.S. mainland, and yet they want to be able to continue it there. Well, I'll tell you, um, in my region, probably about a quarter of my work is spent on uh, different defense-related facilities. Some of them are legacy, you know, old bases that are still dealing with legacy contamination. I mentioned to you earlier, I'm from Sacramento myself. Personally, we had a lot of Air Force bases there closed down, and we had a lot of groundwater contamination from those facilities. And they were a big, you know, part of our community, just like here. So, you know, how is it? It's a constant. It's a constant, you know, there's no more acute story than here in Red Hill where all of our members of, of the military are family and it's part of the community. And it's it's not just on the bases, it's external to the bases. So it is really a difficult challenge to align all of our missions. and But that's the work. And to do so in a transparent and participatory way is also the work, and certainly the Biden administration is, that's like a core that we drive home on on all of it. So that's what we're going to be doing with the next phase of Red Hill, and what we want to see is striving. Of course, we want to strive for that consensus. We're not going to get it all the time, but we have to attempt it. And what I've been hearing most recently from the leadership of the Navy, as well as the Joint Task Force, of course, is they want to do that as well. So we have all the facilities uh, that I work in are so unique, different challenges, a lot of PFAS now, but it's just a constant force that, that we have to continue to push for that alignment. I'm sorry to be so kind of obtuse on it, but it's, it's really, it's, it's the work. That's the work of it. Well, we thank you for carving out some time for us on this trip, and we hope to catch you again when you come back through. Thank you, Catherine. Absolutely. That was Martha Guzman, administrator for the EPA Region 9 area, which extends from the West Coast to the Pacific Territories. flap over the proposed PLDC? Well, it stands for Public Land Development Corporation. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton takes a look back. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this project or this proposal uh, was a, a, um, the idea of uh, Senate President 
Donovan Del, oh, excuse me, um, Senate Ways and Means Chair Donovan Dela Cruz. Exactly. So he years ago, um, about a decade ago, he uh, proposed a bill and it actually passed and created an agency called the Public Land Development Corporation. It was highly controversial, so controversial that uh, the legislature, a um, couple of years later, uh, essentially dissolved it. So it took the rare step of dissolving a state agency. Uh, now, what we're seeing is, um, and lawmakers have talked about it to us, is that Senator Dela Cruz didn't really need the Public Land Development Corporation to do a lot of the things uh, he wants to do and wanted to do and that the Public Land Development Corporation uh, could have done. And what are those things? It, they're basically uh, developed buying land and developing it in the name of economic progress. And so he's doing this, uh, you know, because he is the powerful Ways and Means chair. Uh, yep. And he's figured out how to, I guess, uh, advance these projects without the controversial uh, PLDC <laughs> that he was crucified over. Yeah, that's right. So there are a couple of other agents, a few other agencies sprinkled throughout the state that have this power to buy and develop land. Um, one is something called the Agribusiness Development Corporation. The other is the Hawaii Technology Development Corporation. They're not really corporations or agencies. And they, um, <clears throat> it's interesting because they're not, they're under the executive branch. They're part of DBED or Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism, but they're attached agencies, which means that they um, really have their own boards and are governed by independent boards. So the governor doesn't have the same influence over these agencies that the governor would have over something like, you know, another agency. So this and the senator has figured out ways to influence these agencies um, and then he can steer money to them as the Ways and Needs chairman. So you have a senator basically stepping in to the executive branch and kind of making moves that normally the governor would only be able to make. And this is raising some eyebrows with some of his colleagues. Well, for sure. So a couple of bills um, this session are uh, going to be vetoed by the governor. He says one bill that would fund $50 million for a PEP project in the senator's district. Um, he is going to, the governor said he's vetoing that. There was also a bill that would have uh, essentially disqualified a board member from serving on the technology development agency. And um, he, the, that particular board member has spoken out about one of the senator's pet projects. And the senator sought to ax that person from the board. The governor says he's going to veto that bill, too, because it's wrong to single out an individual. Right. And that was Vasilis Sirmos, uh, who you reported on before uh, with exactly. that law enforcement uh complex out in uh, yeah. Donovan Dela Cruz's yeah. district. Yeah, that's yeah, that pet project as you mentioned is a law enforcement project. It's a big campus um, in Mililani. It would be about the size of Kapilani Park and Zoo um, for all kinds of um, uh, first responders. Uh, notably, though, the Honolulu Police Department says they don't want to go there. So one of the biggest agencies wants no part in it. So raises the question, why do we really need it? And I know that uh, you mentioned also the uh, co the development company, the Hawaii Community Development Authority, HCDA, in Kaka'ako as well. Exactly. So one of the interesting things is, so the HCDA um, is best known for helping redevelop Kaka'ako, overseeing development of that. Um, also in its purview are a few other uh, places like Kaleloa. The senator has sought to involved HCDA in the development of this first responder park or tech campus out in Mililani that we discussed. And the interesting thing is there was recently a media tour trying to show the need for this uh, campus. And along with the senators advocating for it came the executive director of the HCDA um, who said, yeah, we need it. And contrary to, frankly, the facts, the executive director said, oh, and the police department wants to be part of this. Yeah, so, so lots of controversy swirling over these uh, uh, projects that uh, uh, Senator Dela Cruz has proposed. So something to keep an eye on. 
it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And it, it again, it doesn't necessarily mean these projects are bad, but it is an interesting uh, uh, thing that's going on where someone who wanted an agency to do these things has found a workaround with other entities. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read the entire story at civilbeat.org. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. So, what's to blame for two months of radio silence on an ongoing Mars mission? We've got the answer on your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we may be able to spot ourselves in the sky. And that's thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. And if everything works out, he should be right here waiting for us. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will set at around about 9.45 p.m. Also, do keep an eye out for Saturn, which will rise in the east just after 10 p.m. The moon this week will be passing through its last quarter phase, which will bring a welcome return to dark skies. Man, I don't think that those dark skies are going to help with spotting that helicopter up on Mars, but luckily we've got you bringing us a report on that thing. Yes, after a tense 63 days of radio silence, the Mars helicopter drone Ingenuity has finally decided to check in with the Perseverance rover that serves as the land-based aircraft carrier for this remarkable mission. The helicopter, which weighs a mere four pounds, had stopped communicating almost two months ago at the end of its 50-second flight. Now, though, the little helicopter that could is pinging away happily again and ready for another round of aerial adventures on the Red Planet. As for that loss of communication? Yes, the dropping comms is due to rough terrain around the area of Jezero Crater, where Perseverance and Ingenuity were both conducting missions. The undulating terrain can cause signal loss, just like we experience with our cell phones when there's terrain between us and a cell phone tower. So an issue for sure, huh, if you're doing the drone as a forward reconnaissance vehicle. It is indeed. NASA has aimed to keep the drone ahead of the rover so it can scout out potential sites for exploration and also avoid terrain hazards. One of the downsides of this advanced recon is that sometimes the drone will appear to go dark, that is, drop off comms. And one of the neat things about this right from the beginning, Chris, was it was only supposed to have a limited number of missions. Now, where are we on the missions, and are they going to use it again? <laughs> yeah, they are certainly going to use it again, and you're absolutely right. And soon, perhaps as early as next week, if all the onboard diagnostics check out. The drone was initially only slated to conduct five missions back in February of 2021. It's now about to undertake its 53rd mission over two years later. Rock on ingenuity. Getting their money's worth out of that, huh? Oh, yeah. (laughs) An amazing story, a real feel-good one, too. All the way from Mars, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. Thank you, brother. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We will catch you next week, and you can look for Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Now it's time to step back in time for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. We were looking for the name of a famed but long-ago island in the watery region of what is now Kapi'olani Park. The island was named after James McKee, a Scottish whaling ship captain, one of King Kalakaua's poker buddies, and the Kapi'olani Park Association's first president. He came to Hawaii in 1843, and after being wounded in a Honolulu waterfront brawl, he moved to Maui and bought the Ulupelakua Ranch. He was a colorful and well-liked local figure, a reflection of how the island got the name McKee's Island, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Around the time of the 1898 annexation by the U.S., the Army used Kapilani Park as a staging ground for military action. The Army uh, Army made repeated complaints against the park's mosquito-infested lagoons, and as a result, 
1918 legislature appropriated $100,000 for the excavation of a drainage canal, the Alawai Canal, which would render Waikiki dry and ripe for development, thus extending the existence, uh, uh, ending the existence of McKee's Island. Um, we had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. This past Friday, an unusual pop-up art exhibit took place in Chinatown. HPR's Cassie Ordonio joins us this morning to talk about that. Hi. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So tell us about this event. It was outdoors? It was outdoors. So on first Friday, there was a pop-up art event that was curated by Kathy Lowenberg. She's an attorney, and also she had the help of her friend, Nessa Ferreira Vieira. She's been experiencing homelessness for the past 15 years living off River Street. What Kathy and Nessa have been doing, Kathy has been taking intimate portraits of people experiencing homelessness on River Street, all over Chinatown and elsewhere, with the help of Nessa to kind of help them you know, get comfortable to take their portraits. And the way Kathy got into photography, she uses an iPhone 13, not your typical camera, but you can do a lot with an iPhone now. She doesn't consider herself a street photographer. This was kind of something for her own self, her personal project, to serve as a reminder for those who, those that we pass by on the streets, is just to take a stop and just make eye contact with them and also talk story with them. These are folks who had once had a home before, and these, uh, especially in Chinatown, we have folks who have been experiencing homelessness for decades now. And so what she's been doing is doing these pop-up events that happened this last Friday where they have like a string, like a clothing line, a string line of photos of homeless individuals and these intimate portraits. Some are smiling, some have tattoos on their faces, and some are even holding their dogs. And this is a way for her to document and tell their stories this way and just serve as a reminder for people to just stop and look at those who are in our communities. And so did the exhibit, you know, uh, detail their stories at all? Just, you know, give a snapshot besides the image, but just more of the the storyline? There was more than just a storyline. You actually have people who are in the photos who are actually at the event telling their stories. Like Nessa Ferreira Vieira, for example, she was telling her stories how she lost her home, she lost her wife, and how being on the streets, the one thing that she wants to get rid of, this is her dream that she's been talking about, is to get rid of crystal meth or ice. So her goal is to not pass it down. And so for Kathy, um, this was kind of something she wanted to do with Nessa. So this is what Kathy had to say about photography. And a lot of the reason I wanted to take pictures of people is um, folks from, that I knew were passing away or people, you know, folks would go missing. And I wanted to just have a document of people who are there, just some kind of document that this person existed. So were these pictures of the homeless that she took, was it just in Chinatown or just across Oahu? It was mostly in Chinatown just because Chinatown, the downtown area, including Nu'uanu and Kalihi, have the second largest rate of homelessness. And when she first came, I mean, the community on River Street, they thought that she was serving someone their warrant when she was just there to connect with the community. And this is what Nessa had to say about when she first met Kathy. The day she came to the river, first of all, Hardly anybody comes to the river, parks the car, gets out to stay on the river. So she came out, and you're pretty, you're pretty lady. She comes, who is this lady on the street? What is she doing now? You know what I mean? What's she doing? She's going to drop off somebody's warrant. Or what, we never know what the hell was going on. So we get up there, and now she's cool and everything. But you know what she did? She took pictures of us in not looking for something wrong. Most people take pictures of the homeless to catch them in something that they're not supposed to do. Catch them in weird position, weird whatever, you know what I mean? Whatever. And she never. She came in from the heart. So that's basically how they met. And this past event is called Independence. And Nessa gave it that name because she wanted people to stop depending on the streets and stop depending on drugs. And her favorite holidays is July 4th and Christmas. So she dubbed 
she made a, a, a pledge that on July 25th, she's asking people not to pass it down, meaning don't pass down the crack pipe, don't pass down any drugs to anyone else because, I mean, the goal is for them to hopefully get housed one day and also just to kind of, you know, make a change for them. Uh, Nessa said because of these photos, it's helped people to like make, uh, make an appointment to see a therapist or um, get some type of housing or even like schedule an appointment to see their kids because they've been on the streets for so long. So the artwork that was also displayed there is also done by Nessa. So along with the portraits, Nessa has been a longtime artist. She was actually a tattooist at one point. But this art event actually, it's no longer up, but Kathy and Nessa are hoping to collaborate with like other folks to get more of their portraits and well for Nessa this is like her advice to people who see someone who's homeless depends on who you see on the street some people you should run from some people you should say hi some people you should help if whatever but I look at it this way everybody here is here because they want to be not because they have to be so with that said watch what you guys do for them because I tell you <laughs> They all can handle themselves, they do. But they handle a lot better putting their hand out and doing what they do, and that's what they do. And because people think they're helping the homeless situation by giving somebody money, they think it's a cool thing to do. And here's what Kathy had to say. You know, they say the eyes are the window to the soul. If you can look at someone in the eye, whether it's a photograph or in person, I think there's an opportunity to connect with people that you wouldn't normally connect with. And we are all in the same community, whether you're on the street, whether you're in an apartment, whether you're in a mansion, we are all part of the same community. Yeah, powerful intent there. And it'll be interesting to see where else this exhibit pops up. Hopefully we get to see more of it. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio. Check out the story on hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for us today. Tomorrow we hear about the upcoming Prince Lot Hula Festival, which returns in person post-pandemic. Here's a new venue, Skygate. Got a memory about the Prince Lot Hula Festival you'd like to share? Call and record something on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation Podcast on our website, also on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.